0: For more details, please check out our website, www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. It is good for us to be together on the Lord's Day, to hear from His Word, to encourage one another, and it is a blessing to be together in this way. If it's your first time with us, my name is um, Pumelelo, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to uh, open up God's Word for us this morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1? Our focus this morning will be verses 12 to 26. Read it, verse 12, until the end of the chapter here. I won't read it right now at the beginning. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but rather we'll read as we get to the section. One of the fundamental misunderstandings about faith in Jesus Christ is the idea that faith can exist outside of objective, demonstrable truth. There is this idea that essentially... Uh, My thought life needs to be switched off, my mind disengaged, and belief must take hold in my heart regardless of any facts. This shows itself in in many different ways. For example, it shows itself in people's hopes. When, When people name and claim things and use terms like we're saying positive things in order to manifest them, That is one that is when your mind has been taught to switch off Uh, when someone comes with questions about christianity and then they are told to not dig so much but rather they are just to put aside their questions and just believe that is when your mind is being told to switch off when someone comes with what appears to be a contradiction in the scriptures this seems to say this here and this seems to say another thing here and you see this and you ask questions And you are told you are not spiritual enough to understand these things. That is when your mind is being told to switch off. This belief system that comes from that essentially asserts that Christianity is a relativistic religion. It is not based on fact. It is not grounded on truth. It has no historical reliability and chiefly you can make of it as you will. It is to you what you want it to be. What do you want Christianity to be? That's what it can be for you. It is perhaps, for one, this is perhaps one of this phenomena is perhaps one of the reasons why the phrase Christianity is not a religion but a relationship has become popular. If it is not a religion, if it is just a relationship with someone, then I can make it what I want it to be. There are no corporate responsibilities for me because I can make it what I want. Uh, because it's just a relationship with someone that I have at home. I can have and maintain that relationship in private in a way that i see fit i can live my life the way that i want to and tell you not to judge me because it's all about a personal relationship with jesus that no one else can see this phenomenon is also one of the reasons why liberal christianity is a thing that exists there are people going to church on Sundays, who do not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, performed miracles, raised people from the dead. He Himself rose from the dead and He promises to judge those who reject Him. There are people who go to church and sing hymns that extol these very truths, but they do not believe them. And their preachers and their pastors don't believe these things as well. And you see, this this idea that Christianity does not need to be based on fact and truth, leads to all kinds of weird religiosity. To some people, Christianity is all about love. That's all it is. It's all about love. Uh, To some, it's all about peace. It's all just about being kind and good to others, and it helps us to order our society. For us to have love and peace, we do not need to bind ourselves to a number of historical facts. And in many ways, some of these statements are true. They have truth in them. But they lose their truth because the way that they are said is to remove Christianity from its factual foundations. Yes, it is true. Christianity is indeed a relationship with Christ. But it is a relationship defined by Him objectively, demonstrably, and factually in His Word yes love is a massive theme in christianity but it is love for the god of the universe who claims to have created the earth in six days and who claims to have parted the red sea there is no way of having a true christianity while at the same time splitting it from its factual claims the book of acts was written so that we, you and I, along with Theophilus, might be mature believers, having certainty regarding the things that we have been taught. In one sense, we could say this, that Acts was written so that you and I might have concrete evidence for the things that we believe in. So that we might have concrete evidence for the things that we hope for. See, God never calls anyone to believe blindly. But he always gives us truth and then he calls us to trust him based on that truth to trust in god for salvation is not to trust in him blindly it is to trust in god and salvation is to trust in him as the god of the universe who reveals to us himself he tells us that his word is sure he tells us that he keeps his promises he shows us in his word that he keeps his promises and then he calls us to have a great faith on him based on what he has revealed about himself to us we're never called to just go in the dark it is always based on truth i say all of this as a by way of introduction because the text in front of us is designed by luke to give you certainty regarding the issues of the faith that you have been taught This narrative in front of us has two parts. Each of these two parts are designed to give you surety that the gospel that you have believed is not some fly-by-night creation of man, but its testimony is from those who really saw these things take place. Last week we saw that the Lord Jesus had given His disciples a mission. And then he 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 promised them help for the mission. He told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then he ascended and he left them. And he told them to travel before that he, he told them to travel to Jerusalem in order that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And after they would receive the Holy Spirit, their mission would begin. And so here we pick the story up in verse twelve as in obedience to the Lord Jesus' command, they are going to Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 12 as we look at the first part of this text. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Luke's interest at this point is to detail for us exactly who was there among this new group of believers, among this, this core initial group of believers. Theophilus here is given a detailed information sheet about who were the first Christians in the post-ascension of Christ era. And each of these groups of people here show the reliability of the Christian message. This group of people here are not converted by anyone else's preaching yet. No one here is a convert to Christianity because somebody came to them and told them about Christianity. These people are here because they saw these things themselves. These are the first eyewitnesses. They saw, they are, in in a real sense, they are the source of authoritative Christian information. And the first people that Luke tells us about here is the eleven apostles in verse 13. He names them for us, each one by his name. The eleven apostles are not just foundational eyewitnesses to these things, but they are the foundational leaders of the Christian church. Jesus set them apart from all his other disciples to be leaders among them and to testify not just about his life death and resurrection But also to teach the disciples about the kingdom of God in a way that Jesus was teaching When Jesus would speak to the crowds in parables, you will remember that he spoke He spoke plainly to these his apostles to give them understanding The mysteries of the kingdom are entrusted to these men in order for these men to faithfully relay them to other disciples uh, going forward into the future. The next group that he tells us about here, if you just jump uh, a verse down, is the women. He says, they were in in one mind, in verse 14, they were all one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. These women have been there for a large part of Jesus' ministry. Luke often mentions these women immediately after he mentions the twelve, showing the special place that these women played alongside the twelve. For example, in Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us that while Jesus was going town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God, uh, the twelve were with him, as well as Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many other women who, quote, provided for them out of their means. It was these. It was there was a group of women who were providing for the Lord Jesus and the twelve out of their own means. They were their patrons, giving them what they need in order to eat. And of course, some of these women that are mentioned here, some of these women were the first to report that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. They're the ones who had actually gone to the tomb and seen that Jesus was not there, but was alive. And the last group of people that Luke mentions here is Jesus's blood relatives. Jesus's blood relatives mary the mother of Jesus. And you see there in verse 14 and his brothers. We would, of course, expect to see Mary here because she has been there throughout. She was there when Jesus was dying. But the surprising inclusion here in verse 14 is Jesus' brothers, Jesus' blood brothers. See, throughout the the, the Gospels, during Jesus' ministry, his brothers clearly do not believe his claims. They often, there's a point in John where they mock him and say, well, if, you're, if you claim to be something big, why don't you go up? They, they often don't believe him. They often uh, seem as if they are mocking him, it sounds, it sounds like at times. And in John chapter 7 verse 5, John makes it clear that his brothers did not believe in him at all. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. And yet here they are, we're told now, here they are of one mind with the rest of the disciples. What happened? How did they end up here? Well, Luke doesn't tell us himself, but thankfully Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul the Apostle explains that Jesus appeared to his brothers after his resurrection. In Jesus' brothers then, we see people who were skeptical who for whatever reasons did not believe in Jesus up until he died. Even after he died, they didn't believe in him. It was only when he personally resurrected alive, eating food, clearly showing that he's alive, when he appeared to them and they believed him and believed in his claims. They had a fundamental shift in their minds about who Jesus was now that they saw him alive after they had seen him being killed. These varied witnesses, the, the eleven, the women, the G- Jesus' brothers, relay to us the foundation of Christian doctrine. These witnesses are to relay Christianity as it is, a religion based on the facts that they saw. And this leaves you and I with a few things to think about. First, Our faith, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is an apostolic faith. It comes from this group of people. It comes from the 11, the 12. Everything we believe was first witnessed to by these people. These are the people that we are to go to, to test, to see if we are right or wrong. At any given point, if you teach something that was not delivered and attested to by this initial group of eyewitnesses, you are in error. That is why Muhammad is in error. That is why Joseph Smith is in error. That is why the Mother God people are in error. That is why Lechanyan is in error. Everyone is in error when they teach a gospel that is not in line with the foundational leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ. These were the people who who Jesus entrusted to relay Christianity to us as it is. Even Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, after he was called to be an apostle by the resurrected Jesus, he came to this group of people to ensure in his own words in Galatians chapter 2 that he had not run and not preached in vain. He says that in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I went there to them to ensure that I had that not run this race of mine and not preached like this in vain. And then they saw him and they gave him the right hand of fellowship and they perceived that he is an apostle like them, given a ministry to the Gentiles. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. Anyone then who comes to you and teaches you something that, it, that this group never affirmed, And that Paul never affirmed. You must reject them post haste. Do not be made slaves of people who are coming in with a different message. This is a responsibility that you have. Your faith that you have must always go back to what did these people deliver? What is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? See, the faith that we have is not like... A program on your phone that needs to be updated every year or every couple of months. there's no updating of this message. It was once and for all delivered to the saints. But also, there's an encouragement here. Be encouraged because there is a great blessing of joy in believing their testimony without having seen these things for yourself. You didn't see Jesus crucified yourself, you didn't hear him speak yourself, you didn't see him resurrected yourself. But you know what Jesus said to Thomas? You remember when Thomas when Jesus had resurrected, and Thomas was, was saying, Unless and Thomas wasn't there with him. And so he said, Unless I touch him, unless I see it myself, I will not believe. And then the Lord Jesus shows up. And Thomas is there and Thomas sees him and falls down before the Lord Jesus. And he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says to Thomas, do you believe because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed, literally, happy is the one who has not seen me and yet believes. Happy is the one who has not seen me and yet believes. Peter the Apostle reiterates this same idea in 1st Peter chapter 1. He says this in verse 8. He says, Though you, meaning the disciples that he's writing to in Asia Minor, unlike me, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And here it is, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God is at the moment giving the world an opportunity to receive great blessing and great joy because he is calling us all to believe in these wonderful things that these people saw that we did not. But by believing in these things, we will have the gift that they had, which is forgiveness of sins. And we will rejoice like they rejoice. Their joy, having seen these things, is no more than ours. Because we believe and have the same gift that they were given. The forgiveness of our sins and life eternal with Jesus Christ. Christianity is an invitation to a great feast. This is a strong theme for Luke. If you've ever read Luke and Acts together, you'll see it's a, it's a strong theme for him. It is a great, it's an invitation to a great feast. There is rejoicing here because our sins are forgiven. Those of you, therefore, who are burdened with sin, who are tired of fighting sin, who are heavy laden with exhaustion, you must remember that you have been, in, you have been invited to come in and lay your burdens aside on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't try and carry your burden. Relieve yourself on Him. Believe in Him, on the works that He has done, and you will not be disappointed. Well, we're also told about this group, that this group of 120 traveled a Sabbath day's journey from the mountain and came to an upper room where they were staying in the city. And in this upper room in verse 14, this is what we're told that they were doing. What were they doing, all 120 of them? What are they doing? They were of one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were of one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. While they wait for the Holy Spirit for a number of days, they devoted themselves to seeking God's face. We're not told exactly what they were praying for, But what is clear is that as a unified group their hearts were given over to god's purpose for them and they were setting themselves apart for the help that he has promised notice in verse 14 that luke combines two things in the verse being united in mind and prayer he does this because he wants us to look beyond their praying it is not just that they came together to pray but it is that their hearts and minds were given over in a single purpose to be to seek god's will they had come to jerusalem to wait and as they wait they are not squabbling amongst themselves did you notice this they're not squabbling amongst themselves they're not fighting in the past we had seen them jostling for positions do you remember when they, when they were walking with Jesus wondering, okay, who's going to be the first and the king? Who's going to sit on the right-hand side? Even now, as Jesus' brothers join the group, there's no discussion about what's the authority that Jesus' brothers have. There's no squabbling. Instead, what we're seeing is they're united in mind, united in prayer. And the idea is they're united in seeking God's face and God's will as they wait for the promise that He has promised them. Like Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in perfect unity. There is a lesson here even for us. Our devotion must be to God, united together as those forgiven by Him. We must fight as a church for unity of mind, to be in unison, to pull in the same direction, Yes, we have different backgrounds. And yes, we have different pressures on our lives. But we must not let those pressures get in the way of us being united in one direction. See, the reality is that all of us as we're here this morning and as we unite together, we have many different things going on in our minds and many different pressures from the side. Mothers of young children in our midst have real pressures that demand their time. Business owners among us have serious pressures and all sorts of things running through their minds as they try to think about their businesses and how to ensure that things are going well for their families. Teenagers among us and the students among us have so much to deal with on a weekly basis and so much temptation to fight against. I could keep going on about all the different demographics that we have here As we're all trying to during the week to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and deal with what's on our plate but how beautiful would it be for us as a congregation amidst all of these different pressures amidst all of these different things that require our attention as they should to be of one mind to be pulling in the same direction to to be to set apart our purpose as a church together very clearly that we are about loving God, loving our neighbor, and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. How beautiful would it be if all these other pressures of life do not separate us from unity of mind. How wonderful would it be if as we're dealing with them, we're also keeping clear as our, to our mission, knowing that our mission is an eternal one as a church. All of these things that we must do in our different spheres and our different capacities are good and necessary and we must do them. But it is a beautiful thing that in the midst of doing them, we are pulling together, caring for one another, loving God together and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. So much friction is caused by pressures and people not understanding each other because of the different pressures that people are dealing with. What a wonderful thing it is if we were to commit as a church that in in the midst of all these things we are going to have one mind together we're going to care for one another we're going to love each other we're going to honor god in our lives we're going to be serious about his word and we're going to proclaim the gospel to the lost may the lord make it so here at heritage well that's the first part of the text that is for us now let's Go to the second part of the text from verse 15 which deals with the replacement of Judas. Let's read from verse 15. At this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So that in their own language, that field was called Hakildama, That is, field of blood. Peter continues, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that all of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, during this time of praying and devotion to the Lord, Peter stands up and addresses the proverbial elephant in the room. And that is, as wonderfully united as we are here, there is one of us who is missing because he betrayed the Lord. But lest anyone is confused, Peter makes clear the reason why they have someone who betrayed the Lord Jesus is because... The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. You see in in Luke chapter 24, we are told that the Lord Jesus opened the minds of the Apostles to understand the Scriptures. And here now we see Peter showing his understanding of the Scriptures by taking these two Psalms and applying them to Judas. Now Peter is going to at some point disappoint us. He's going to have some funny interpretations that the Lord has to correct him on later on in the book. But here at least is showing good understanding of the scriptures first he says about Judas that Judas was with us in the ministry meaning that our job is to be witnesses to the world to the life death resurrection and teaching of Jesus Christ and Judas was counted a share in that ministry Judas was called to be a witness of Christ. He was called to be the one who goes out and proclaims forgiveness in Christ's name. But he chose to betray him. And after he betrayed him, he bought a field with the price, hung himself, and fell headlong into the ground such that his insides gushed out. And Luke tells us in verse 19 that this, this, this field was known uh, by the general population of Jerusalem. And Peter in verse 20 quotes Psalm 69, in ver- Psalm 69 verse 25 and Psalm 109 verse 8. As not only predicting that Judas will indeed die and his name will not be associated with the ministry. But also that someone else must take his office. Someone else must take his office his occupation. Judas will not have a place among the apostles. Judas is not going to have this place of of speaking Christian doctrine like all the other apostles do. When the other apostles speak and write down, inspired by the Spirit, they are speaking what what is to become Christian doctrine. But Judas is not going to have a place there. Someone else must take his office because he forfeited his place by his betrayal. But nevertheless, no one must worry why someone who saw these things, who saw Jesus teaching, who saw Jesus preaching and and doing miracles, who saw Jesus uh, uh, walking among them, clearly evidencing that He is the Son of Man. He is the one that they were waiting for. And that that same person betrayed Jesus. That Peter is saying here, let not anybody be worried about that because the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. This is the same thing that paul deals with in romans chapter 9 if jesus christ and here's the question that's really being asked in the beginning of romans chapter 9 if jesus christ is so wonderful then why on earth did his own nation israel reject him and paul answers because the scriptures had said so Scriptures saw a way for this to happen, and Peter here says, don't be too worried when you think about Judas, how can Judas betray Jesus if Jesus is truly the Messiah? Well, the Scripture had said and seen that Judas would, would, would betray the Lord Jesus, so it's not, it's not anything to worry about. It, it's possible for you here today, this morning, sitting here, and you perhaps have been hurt by churches, Okay? This is, this is very sensitive and very serious. It's possible that someone here has been badly hurt by churches or church leaders. And you wonder to yourself, how can someone who says they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've seen Jesus Christ. They've, they've tasted and seen Jesus change their lives. How can they treat me this way? How can they treat my sister this way? My relative this way? My, my friend this way? Perhaps you're wondering, how is it that someone who is a pastor who says he loves Jesus is able to treat people with such corruption? That is a fair question. And Peter's answer here about Judas is applicable to your question as well. See, the scripture always predicts that there will be false prophets who will come in among us and want to take advantage of the people. Scripture also predicts and says that we will be sinning against each other until the Lord returns. And so the hurts that we have felt from churches, either true churches or false churches, is not anything to make you doubt Jesus Christ or the message. These are things that the Scripture has foreseen. And you must hear this, dear friend, you must hear this. The problem is not Christ. The problem is not the message. The problem is sin and scripture is not surprised when all kinds of evil and horrible things are done in the name of Christ. Scripture is not surprised. Scripture warns us and prepares us. The message still stands. Jesus Christ is still Jesus Christ. He is still holy. He is still the savior of the world. He is still the only name given to mankind by which we might be saved. I, I understand the hurts that you have felt I, I maybe perhaps I don't understand it perhaps you really you've, you've had really deep hurts and I, and I hear you but you still have a responsibility to answer to Jesus Christ you must still come to him and come to him for life don't reject him because someone came in his name and did you wrong Jesus Christ is going to deal with that person but you need to also deal with your own soul the only one who's going to save your soul is him He's going to deal with the one who abused you. He's going to deal with the one who, who was corrupt against you, who hurt you in real ways, who took your money. who did all kinds of evil things to you. But, but please, dear friend, listen to me. Jesus Christ is not Him. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And you must come to Him if you are to live. If you are to have life, you are to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, Peter then, in verse 21 and verse 22, calls the gathered group to apply this text by choosing someone to take Judas's place. But not just anyone, someone who actually meets the qualifications. This person must have been around from the beginning of Jesus' ministry up until the ascension of Jesus meaning this person is going to be a credible witness from the beginning until until the end this person's job is going to be clear this disciple will become along the apostles a witness to the resurrection see paul said, peter says that he must be a witness with us to the resurrection and here and again we're given confidence in our religion you see not just any tom dick and C paul can can come and be a foundational leader in the christian church but only those who meet specific requirements okay this is not a religion that was made somewhere in the corner by people who were far removed from the the issues this is a religion that comes from people who saw this who were taught who were changed and were selected by the lord jesus christ for the task the Apostle Paul, I know in your mind, because you know your Bible, you are, you're wondering, wait, Paul wasn't there from the beginning. So what about him? Well, the Apostle Paul, even as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the last one that Jesus appeared to, mentioned that he was an, a, an apostle, untimely born. He says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he was an abnormal apostle he's not the normal kind the normal kind is this one and he was an abnormal apostle at one untimely born he of course was called by the lord jesus and the lord jesus appeared to him after he resurrected and then the other disciples verified him okay he went to the disciples he went to them and they gave him the right hand of fellowship he, they verified him and as they recognized his apostleship his unique and untimely apostleship he was to be the the apostle to the gentiles this term then this term apostle must be sacred in our minds of course because the the term you know literally just means an envoy or a messenger someone who's sent but in the christian church the apostle with a capital a is a separate is a separate group that is a special category that was not to exist forever It was a group of people who who were there with Jesus, taught by Jesus, and then commissioned by Jesus to go to the world. And then the Apostle Paul was added to that as one untimely born. It is sad that the term apostle has been misconstrued so horribly these days. Unfortunately, in our country and in the world, really, in general, people give themselves this title of apostle, even though they do not meet the qualifications and unlike Paul they were not verified by the first apostles and then these people who call themselves apostles they go on to embarrass Christianity by their very unapostolic behavior it is quite a sad thing See, dear friends, I want you to think with me. Christianity is not a mindless religion such that someone can just stand up and claim a post that he is not qualified for. The testimony which Christianity hangs on is reliable because the original, because the original witnesses were reliable witnesses who saw these things themselves. That is why the Apostles make it a point often to remind us that these things they saw. John op- first, uh, John opens his first letter, 1st uh, John, with that very reminder. These things that we have seen as the Apostles, we now relay to you. So uh, we, we must have this set up. And this must grow the confidence in us. I, I know there's... As much as there are conspiracy theories today about all kinds of things, there have always been conspiracy theories about Christianity. Uh, if you've ever watched perhaps the, that old that movie Zeitgeist in the past, one of the conspiracies is that it was just created by certain people in order to control the world. Created by some people in Rome to control the world. But what Luke has done here, he's recorded for us, so that we might have certainty in our religion, in the faith, in the fact that our sins can truly be forgiven. Because these people saw it. These are, they are true witnesses to the fact. And so, in trying to get someone who is qualified, um, in verse 23, they put, the, the disciples put forward two people who are, who are qualified according to this qualification. That is, someone who has been with the disciples from the beginning of Jesus' ministry up until the end, in order that person will take up the place of the apostleship um, along with the rest of the apostles. They put forward two candidates. Joseph, who was called Basabas, who was also called Justice. You know, Joseph had many names. <laughs> Joseph, Basabas, Justice, um, And Matthias, and it's funny that Matthias is the one who's chosen. It's like the guy with the many names didn't get it, never mind. Um, And Matthias, they put forward these two men. And look at verse 24, look at their prayer in verse 20. And they prayed and said, You Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Jesus turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles, such that then they became the twelve once more. The disciples put forth these two men who meet the external qualifications for apostleship. And then they asked the Lord to choose between them, because he is the one who knows the hearts, and they are asking him to make his choice. In the old covenant, in the Old Testament, the way to ask the Lord to reveal His choice there were a few ways, when uh, one of them was a choice uh, by lot. And if you're wondering what a lot and, and what a lot is, it's basically something that functions as a modern-day dice. Think of it that way: something that is random, and then people pull them, and then. One of the, lo- the lot falls on someone. It basically functions as a modern day dice. And the reason they do this is because they want the Lord to make the choice between these two great candidates who both meet the qualifications. But <clears throat> just because, now, here's the thing just on the side just because they did it this way doesn't mean that that's what we're supposed to do when we're trying to find leadership. Okay, we don't, when we're trying to find perhaps, let's say, pastors or deacons or Uh, to send someone to do an important task on behalf of the church. We don't say, okay, let's grab the dice or let's play, uh, you know, some kind of roulette. Um, uh, Just because they did it this way, you have to to remember this principle. As we go through this narrative throughout the book of Acts, something that is done doesn't necessarily mean that that's what is prescribed for the rest of the church and how to act. It's just what they did. Having their minds, of course, being those who live in the switch The time where the old covenant was receding and the new covenant was coming forth, that's what they did. So don't cast lots, please, to make any important decisions and then say that I said to you to do so. Luke is not not saying that's what we must do. Uh, Nowhere in the scriptures are we told to make decisions this way. However, the heart behind how they did this decision is good for us to learn from. It is good for us to pray that the Lord would reveal hearts. Are you with me? When we, when we make decisions in life, in our private lives, and in our corporate lives as a church, we must be humble and ask the Lord to reveal to us people's hearts. We need to pray and ask the Lord to give us what we need based on His perfect will And that He may not give us our desires based on our imperfect perception. We can't see as well as He does. And so we do need to rely on Him. Some application for this. To the parents in the room. As you shepherd your children, pray that God will reveal your children's hearts as they grow. So that you can really help them. And don't be easily satisfied by their correct behavior. Pray that the Lord, you be thankful for their correct behavior. Be thankful that they obey you. Be thankful when they do things that you tell them to. But also pray that the Lord would reveal their hearts to you. What's truly in there. So that you can know what medicine to truly apply. Many people have been duped by, by kids who act fine and then they leave home. And it's, disaster, it's a complete disaster fire from them. What we need to do is to try and get to the heart and deal with the matters of the heart and not be quickly uh, be excited by external good behavior. Pray that the Lord would reveal your children's hearts to you so that you may shepherd them well. If you're looking for a spouse and perhaps you have someone under consideration, pray that God would reveal this person's heart so that you may not make a, dece- a decision Based on your imperfect perception. Pray that the Lord would, would make it obvious. Would make it clear. In ways that he sees fit. That perhaps a, a situation comes. You know the tr- we're told that trials come. In order to, create, to ensure that steadfastness might have its complete work in us. Perhaps a trial. if you pray. Show me who this person truly is. Perhaps there will be a trial. You will be driving on the highway. And the tire bursts. Then you're going to see the true measure of the person. Pray that the Lord would somehow reveal uh, in ways that are, that, are one, that, are, that are clearly discernible the true hearts of the people uh, that you are considering. Now, I say all of this, um, but I don't want you to be paralyzed in making decisions because we don't want to be mystics and superstitious people uh, needing to cast lots or needing to do all kinds of things. But we must be a praying people. In as much as we are want to be people who make decisions and go forward and make decisions that seems wise, we also want to be a praying people. We also want the Lord to lead us. That is why the proverb says in Proverbs 3, acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. That's acknowledging him part of it is to say, "Lord, I might not help me to see what I'm not seeing here to, in order to help me to make the right decision." Well, may the Lord uh, do that for us, that we might be a people uh, uh, who trust Him, who walk with Him, uh, be a people who who trust Him with all of our decisions. And even as a church, as we seek to add more officers in the future and seek to, add, and seek to give different people in the church, ladies in the church, uh, men in the church, give them different responsibilities in the church, may we pray that the Lord would reveal to us that we might see who the person truly is so that... We might entrust important tasks to the right people. Amen. Let's pray.